Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Canope. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. This is one of the biggest, if you want to use the kind of language of uh, battles or fight for control of Oregon in history. We've got three open congressional races, at least one, maybe two chambers up for grabs, depending on the way things go and the governor's seat. And so you just see this really competitive environment in Oregon, probably the most competitive we've seen it since 2010, right? And so that just leads everyone to try even harder to win. All right, folks, I'm back after missing last week. I heard reports that it was the worst podcast in the history of the Oregon Bridge. So my apologies for leaving the pod. Actually, I will say I have not listened to the whole thing. I listened to part of it. I think Reagan, both you and Alex did a good job of withholding too much bias. I think a little bit seeped through more from Alex, which is kind of to be expected. But thanks for filling in last week with Alex. Absolutely. Ben, I left in a mystery as to what you were uh, up to. I didn't know if you wanted to tell the listeners or let it remain a mystery. You can be a man of mystery if you want. I am not really a man of mystery. I just started a new job. I have a new job working in the Gladstone School District that I'm actually very excited about. I was working at the Department of Education and obviously... Because of the Oregon Constitution, you can't work for two branches of government simultaneously. So in preparation for hopeful, knock on wood, legislative service, I'm starting a new job where that will be possible. We try to be transparent on the podcast about where we work, what our other interests are, just so folks know. But also, very obviously, I am speaking only for myself when I'm on this podcast and writing for the newsletter, not for any of my employers, past, present, and future, just for myself. Well, Ben, as a... I just want to congratulate you on uh, moving from the administrative side of education, which is taking money away from the classrooms and working in a school district, which is actually educating the children. So I really appreciate that, Ben. That is the best backhanded compliment I've gotten from you, Reagan. Thank you. We will talk more about education at some point. I'm very into education. We haven't actually gone super deep on the podcast. I know you've actually got a bit of a background in education. I think you served Uh, on a charter school board. Is that right? Yeah, I was on a charter school board in Medford, and that was a, a ton of fun. And you learned so much about the challenges of administering education and all of that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, we know how to compare notes sometime and see what we can do. Yeah, that'll be a good that'll be a good episode someday. But today, that is not the episode. Today, the episode is about the money race for Oregon governor, labor commissioner, and legislative caucus leadership. And what I mean by that is you get a lot of articles or headlines that talk about big contributions in races, particularly for governor, you know, a million bucks from Phil Knight, uh, RGA or DGA, the governor's associations coming in with big checks. But there's not often a lot of context about why that matters or how people should be thinking about those contributions. So what Reagan and I have done is we spent some time today accumulating totals of total amount of money that each candidate has raised, the total amount they've spent, and how much cash they have left. And so we're going to talk through our thinking about how we are processing those numbers and what they mean to us. Reagan, anything you wanted to add in terms of context before we jump into some of the specific numbers and races? No, I think you covered it pretty well. I mean, the caveat, the number one caveat is Oregon's campaign finance system is very open. Lots of money can appear very late from any source you want. It does get reported, right? But it's on a 30-day schedule right now. 
And then on a seven day schedule as we get close to the election. And so there could be a lot more cash and probably will be a lot more cash that gets spent on these races. But this is as much information as really we have right now. To put a finer point on that, if someone gave a $10 million donation to uh, one of these candidates 29 days ago, that number would not be reflected in what we're about to talk about. That would still be a complete secret from everyone except for the candidate and their campaign committee and anyone they've told. So huge caveat, obviously, but we do have really strong transparency rules to know that things, once the reporting deadline has met, we know all the money that's being spent, including by third party groups. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I will say a lot of campaigns, like my campaign, for example, we just report almost immediately. Like we're not, some campaigns, there's strategic advantage where you don't want people to know that, but a lot of campaigns, and I think even some of the governor's races have stuff reported from less than 30 days ago. Well, there is a strategy, as you said, there's a strategy in that. If you're the front runner, you probably don't want everyone to know exactly how much money you have available. I think Betsy Johnson is reporting some of her contributions later, but if you're trying to catch up, your Kotech, your Drazen, and they've been trying to catch Betsy Johnson on fundraising, they report their contributions very quickly to get their totals up faster. And so when they get compared in the media, they they close that gap faster, even if Betsy Johnson is actually ahead. So you make a good point about that. All right. So let's, you know, we've, we've alluded to the governor's race. Let's talk about the governor's race and where folks stand. So yep. So real quickly, total amount raised, what we were looking at for these numbers is just the calendar year. So these numbers are not all inclusive from the moment they announced they were running for governor. But for our purposes, we're just talking about the 2022 calendar year. Total amount raised, relatively equal. 8.5 million mm-hmm. for Betsy Johnson, 9.6 million from Tina Kotek, 8.8 million from Christine Drazen. So they're all basically within about a million bucks from each other. And the thing, what Reagan and I were talking about before the podcast started is they've each got a major donor who's floating a huge chunk or a category of donors. So the equivalent for each of the three would be Democratic Governors Association, Patina Kotek, National Group. Christine Drazen, it'd be the Republican Governors Association. And then Betsy Johnson, it's sort of like the wealthy donor class of Oregon business leaders, I would say, like Phil Knight and that cohort. So they're relatively equal. In spending, similarly equal, although Betsy goes from third place to first place in spending. She spent 8.8, Tina has spent 7.7 million, and Drazen has spent 7.3 million. Obviously, Betsy had to spend a lot of money to get ballot access. I think that's why her number is so high. And she's obviously got to play catch up. She's behind in most of the polling. So she's got to spend more quickly. And then in cash on hand, Betsy at 2.6 million, Kotek at 2.5 million, and Drazen at 2.0 million. Reagan, what do you make of these numbers? The governor's race is expensive. Yep. The most expensive in Oregon history, almost undoubtedly. I don't know if we've hit that threshold oh, yes. yet, but it's inevitable. It will be, yes. Because um, before, when you had Brown and Bueller, which was the next most expensive race, I want to say in the 40-ish millions is what I recall, this race will eclipse that. And I mean, the reason why is you have three well-funded candidates instead of two. And one of the interesting things about that, I was talking to um, a media buyer today who said that the congressional, we have three competitive congressional elections. We have a competitive governor's race. That is causing the prices for available TV to go up significantly. 
And so not only are they spending more money, they're probably getting less bang for their buck for that money. You also think about price costs have increased. I was talking to my mail supplier and the cost of paper has gone up. And so that means the cost of direct mail is going up. And then the cost of, of stamps has gone up some. So inflation is also taking a little bit out of those numbers too. So if you adjusted the numbers for inflation, you might see something different, but we're definitely going to eclipse that total here just because of having these three very well-funded candidates. And along those lines, like and push back if you disagree with this, but my take is like the difference be- because of all those factors you mentioned, the difference between 2.6 and 2.5 or even 2.5 and 2.0 is not very significant in terms of what it will buy you in a, in a race where 40, $50 million are going to be spent. So right now, like for this year, they've all basically raised and spent what I would consider about the same in different ways. And I guess the the greater context is, and without putting my personal opinion too much into, into this, because I don't want, uh, I'll just let people make their own decision. Like if you think a candidate is in third place and is behind in order for them to catapult from third to first in a race like this, one component is they're going to need to spend a lot of money to do it unless there's some sort of October surprise that fundamentally reshuffles the race. And right now it does not look to me like anyone is well positioned to do that. Again, there's big donors in this race who could come in with a $5 million check and fundamentally shake things up in October. That's totally possible. But right now, it seems like whatever you think the framework of the races is, is not fundamentally changed by fundraising. Yep. Well, and I think there's two other points discussed a little bit with Alex last time, but you look at the poll numbers that we have, which granted are mostly from Republican leaning or Republican source pollsters, all showing this race very close. But what you haven't seen is you haven't seen polls refuting those numbers from Betsy Johnson or from Kotech. Maybe they're coming soon. I don't know. So the only polling we have is slightly biased towards Republicans, but it shows an extremely close race. And so in a situation where you're comparing your poll numbers, where you say, you know, Drazen and Kotek having the party advantage of having prepositioned parties, Johnson running as an independent, but spending a lot of money, all of them being within, you know, Drazen and Kotek being within a couple points of each other in the margin, Betsy Johnson being not terribly far outside the margin, five to 10 points that matches what we're seeing with the money. And so it kind of leads you to believe that those numbers are probably close. You know, Kotech probably has internal showing her ahead. Drazen probably has internal polling showing her ahead. Maybe Johnson has some polling. And I think if the narrative continues to be this race is very close and we don't see any of those other candidates release polling, that probably means that's true. Because otherwise uh, you'd want to release your internals that show a different picture, or, or at least I would strategically. You can make an argument for not doing it and having a surprise victory, but strategically I would release polling showing me ahead. And and they still might, right? Like that could easily happen in early October. Totally. So yep. my final piece on this, and then I'll see if you have any closing thoughts, Reagan, is you know this is an episode about fundraising, but I don't think either Reagan or I believe that fundraising will, whoever raises and spends the most will determine the winner of this election or even necessarily be predictive of the order. And what I mean by that is, I think of the Dudley-Kitzhaber race as a great example of this. Dudley significantly outfundraised John Kitzhaber by millions and millions of dollars. But if you're a candidate for governor and you have to choose between having an extra four or $5 million more than your opponent or having a densely populated metro area with a Democratic Party machine that can knock on those doors and turn out voters, you're going to choose the infrastructure to turn out voters probably. 
So that's just a, a grain of salt. Take all these numbers with a grain of salt. I don't think anyone, especially post-Trump and all the craziness that have happened in politics post-Trump, money still a really important factor in determining the winner of an election, but not a 100% predictive factor, particularly in a high-profile race like governor. So regularly yep. close. Well, and I'd say, government. yes, the main thing I think is that all the candidates have essentially reached parity where they can talk to enough voters where nobody's just going to win this race based on name ID alone. It's going to have to be on other factors. What's the national environment? You know, which which candidate has the highest favorables, those kinds of things. And right now, 538 says Kotech is still slightly favored to win the election. And it's based on, like you said, those fundamentals of us being a traditionally Democratic state and her having a lot of turnout, the vote infrastructure that Republicans haven't displayed in the past. Doesn't mean they can't build it this year and make up some of that ground, but typically it's not something you can stand up in one cycle, but they will benefit potentially from a midterm environment that might lean Republican. But we'll see. The jury's still out on a lot of that stuff. And I'll men- we've mentioned this on this pod before, but I think it's worth repeating. Democrats have a structural advantage because our voters tend to live closer together. It's easier Mm -hmm. to knock on their doors and communicate with them to turn in their ballots than it is for particularly rural voters, but even to to a lesser extent, suburban voters. So yeah. And Democrats have been doing this for decades in Oregon. They're really, we're, and there's more of them. Yes. And there's more of them. So, and it's something I'm proud of. I think Democrats should be proud of that. It's really hard work (laughs) and there's a lot of volunteers who make it happen. And I do think it's, I don't, you have much more Intel on this than I do Reagan, but I think the Republican Party has been trying to build that infrastructure, but with so much challenges, should we say, at the state party, I think it's probably been tough to stick. I agree with that. So Bureau of Labor and Industries, Christina Stevenson, Democrat in a nonpartisan race, running against former state representative Sherry Helt, the Republican in a nonpartisan race. Mm -hmm. Here are the numbers. Christina has doubled Sherry's fundraising almost 776,000 to 397,000. She's also spent almost twice as much more or twice as much more 642,000 to 327,000. And that leaves Christina with about 162,000 on hand and Sherry with 82,000 on hand. Reagan, what do you see in the numbers? Help is a significant underdog here. I think you saw that in the breakdown Stevenson got very close to breaking that 50% threshold, but didn't quite eclipse it, which is why we have a November race. Now, Hell got into this race later, and I think that's also reflected in these numbers some, where Hell hasn't had as much time to introduce herself to voters, fundraise, all that kind of stuff. But I think you also see that there's a lot. The other thing I see in these numbers, not that Bully has always been a knockdown, drag out, big spending race, but the governor's race is sucking a lot of resources out of a pretty important position. You've seen pretty competitive races. I remember 2010, I believe is Brad Avakian versus Bruce Starr, who was, you know, former state legislator. So, I mean, I think we've continued to put up good candidates here, but there's definitely a big difference between how donors are viewing how important the governor's race is versus Bowley. And I think you just see that a lot just gravitate, a lot of focus and a lot of effort and a lot of fundraising and attention gravitates to the top of the ticket. And so that kind of leaves Bowley stuck in the middle here because you also see a lot of we'll see a lot of funding here for a legislature in a minute. And even though Bowley is significant I think it's still kind of viewed as just not as important 
in the grand scheme of accumulating power and focusing, you know, your ability to change the world or change the state of Oregon. Doesn't mean bully isn't significant, but it's just, it's kind of caught in the middle there. Two quick notes on the politics side, and then something I think about with the cash for a race like this. So on the politics side, Sherry Helt did get a big boon when she secured the endorsement of both Betsy Johnson and Christine Drazen. I think, Reagan, almost everyone would agree that those two combined will get 50% or above of the vote in the governor's race. It would be shocking if Tina Kotek got over 50%, right? Yes, I would say, you know, right now my estimate is, is that Betsy Johnson will not break 15%. And the only difference between Kotek and Drazen's margin is going to be if those 15% are primarily Democratic leaning or primarily Republican leaning voters. So I would say that in, yeah, in any case, you would have Betsy and Drazen more likely to equal 50% than Kotek, even if she wins, even if Kotek wins. Right. Like that's what I I think. I think that's what will happen. Hope that's what I hope will happen and think will happen. But my point is so now are people going to say, well, now it is the first thing in Sherry Held's voter pamphlet. If you look it up, the very first thing is endorsed by both Tina Kotek and Betsy Johnson. Mm-hmm. She wants voters to look at that and be like, I don't yep. really know about Bowley, but I voted for Betsy Johnson. So I'm voting for her or I voted for Christine Drazen. That's not how a smart voters, move. Yeah, very smart move. I don't think that's we're not going to see the same number of votes that those two candidates for governor get combined being the total number that. Sherry Helt will get. That's not how voter behavior works, but it was a smart move. And then alternatively, Christina Stevenson has like the last five bully commissioners and a whole host, basically many of the endorsements from the left and center left. So those two quick political notes, just so folks are aware. And then Reagan, a quick question on this before we move to our our legislative section. If you're Sherry Helt and you have have $82,000, or if you're Christina Stevenson, you've got $162,000, you're running a statewide race. That doesn't buy you anything. You can't do much of anything with those totals. You can't really do, I mean, you could pick one media market maybe to do a very small buy. You could do a super targeted mail piece. It's so expensive to run a statewide race and these totals are so low that like, I just don't even know where I would start in terms of a strategy. Yeah, that's a, I think that is the toughest thing about running one of these races or even trying to run a congressional primary on like a less than a million bucks. Like it is a real challenge. If I were a bully candidate right now and I had 80, 250 grand to run a statewide race, I think I would actually take that money and plow it into texting to voters and just try to reach them directly and be like, hey, this is a really important race for an important position that affects workers and business owners. And I hope you'll support me because I think you can kind of, you have to find a way to fly under the radar because you're right, you can't compete on mail, you can't compete on TV. And so you have to find a different way to do that. And so I think between digital and texting, that's where I would go if I were a candidate and just try to you know, you also see a massive undervote for Bureau of Labor and Industries because the reason it doesn't get targeted is because people don't really understand what it does. People have a little bit better idea about Secretary of State, but bullies kind of in that category where they're like, don't really understand what it is. A lot of pe- voters don't. And so it just doesn't get that same kind of cachet. I was going to say digital as well. But now, folks, if you get a if you get a text from a bully candidate, you can blame Reagan Knope for that. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the legislature before we wrap this episode. What we've done here is taken, and Reagan, I'll give you credit for this. You basically pulled 
the caucus packs, so like the mm -hmm. official campaign arms for each of the four legislative caucuses, two Democrat, two Republican, House and Senate, and the packs of the presiding officers and the caucus leaders for each of the four caucuses. Plus, we'll talk about the very special and unique bring balance to Salem pack, which is none of those things, but very much part of this equation. So you're going to expose them, Ben, I can tell. <laughs> uh, yes, consider them exposed. So I guess let's just give the let's just give the total numbers for Republicans and total numbers for Democrats. And then we won't necessarily go in deeply into each of the, what are there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine total caucuses. So here's the high point. Here's the big ticket takeaway. Republicans, without bring balance to Salem, have 1.54 million on hand right now. Mm -hmm. Democrats have 1.64 million on hand. Relatively equal. Again, when you're talking about numbers that big, that kind of a margin of a is, is really small. If you add in bring balance to Salem to those calculations and put them with the Republicans, which is where they're going to spend their money, it's 4.49 million for Republicans to 1.64 million for Democrats. Now, here's the yep. problem with that comparison. Democrats will certainly benefit from outside spending from labor unions, environmental groups, pro-choice organizations, and other groups that want to elect Democrats. As Reagan mentioned, there's a lot of things on the ballot this cycle that are really important, the governor's race, congressional races, et cetera. So it's very unclear how much money can be counted on to go to legislative races, whereas we know for sure Bring Balance to Salem is going to spend their money on legislative races. And I think you could also argue there's some business organizations and wealthy donors who tend to donate to Republicans who have served as somewhat of a counterbalance to some of those progressive organizations. So I guess what I just did is gave a lot of numbers and said, don't, can, don't take any of them too seriously because there's a lot of other factors. But Reagan, given that picture of information, what do you think about? Well, here's what I would say is, is that I think that you're right, that business has offered a counterbalance to union and other Democratic group support. And Republicans have some outside groups, some anti-tax organizations, right? Some pro-firearms organizations, some pro-life organizations that also support them and that offer some grassroots. But I think most people know that those groups are typically not as big as the union organizations and don't put out quite as much effort. And so what I think is happening with Bring Balance to Salem is Republicans realize that they needed to raise more money and they're raising it as hard cash. And they're using that money, hopefully, to build some grassroots stuff that they haven't had in the past to try to make up for that kind of hard work that you're talking about the Democrats have put in over the last two decades to really build the kind of political machinery that can turn out the vote that they need in order to win not just close elections, but win super majorities in good years for Democrats, right? And so I think that the title of Bring Balance to Salem while attempting to equal the numbers of legislators in Salem is actually bringing balance from the Republican side in terms of machinery, hopefully, and in terms of more activity from Republicans than we've had in the past. Because grassroots activity can be free, but almost never is. There aren't enough people that want to give time and participate in the political process. Um, if you've ever run or worked on a campaign, you know how few people are typically doing that, even on a big statewide race, the total number of volunteers you'll have is relatively small compared to the population of the state, right? 
and time is the only resource that is really truly ever limited in the campaign. You can go find some more volunteers if you have to, you can go raise some more money, but the time is the limited thing. And so Republicans are trying to make up for lost time where we haven't built the same kind of machinery the Democrats have. So that's my kind of thought based on that. But I'm sure that we will get accused of buying elections. And that's okay, because we're spending money to convince voters that we are right. Well, and, and the reason why people would have heard of Bring Balance to Salem is there are several articles about this group. This is the group that is paying former Congressman Greg Walden to fundraise for them. I mean, he's clearly succeeding in, I think, Bring Balance to Salem has about $3 million on hand right now. And that's after, they actually haven't spent much yet. They've only spent about 364000 with $3 million cash on hand. So I'm sure we're going to see a lot of information reported <laughs> over the next probably few weeks, actually. All right. So one, um, actually a couple quick caveats to the above information to even further complicate matters, Reagan. One, we didn't talk much about money spent. I would say just glancing at the numbers, I would say roughly, roughly equal, right? Not 100%, but roughly equal in the partisan split. Senate Republicans have spent significantly more than Senate Democrats, I will say. And Future PAC has spent significantly more than House Republicans. So a little bit imbalanced on, depending on which caucus that you look at. Here's some other caveats. This doesn't cover the money that are in the bank accounts of safe seat legislators. So for example, there's Portland legislators for Democrats or rural legislators for Republicans, some of whom have six figures in their pack. Some of that money will almost certainly be spent to support their candidates. Reagan was also talking earlier about, before we started recording, about non-cycle senators. So senators have four-year terms. Half the senators are in the middle of their term. Many of those senators will be contributing significant amounts of money to both candidates and caucuses to support them during the cycle. So, Reagan, any any comment on those factors? No, I mean, you covered it perfectly. There's still plenty of more money out there, and I'm sure every day Senator Canope and Senator Wagner and Representative Rayfield and Representative Vicki Breeze Iverson wake up and they make some phone calls to try to go get that money so that they can go win their races because – I think every caucus has a lot of targeted races, and we're going to see probably one of the biggest, I mean, based on these numbers and the overall takeaway is this is one of the biggest, if you want to use the kind of language of battles or fight for control of Oregon in history. We've got like three open congressional races, at least one, maybe two chambers up for grabs, depending on, on the way things go and the governor's seat. And so you just see this really competitive environment in Oregon, probably the most competitive we've seen it since 2010, right? And so that just leads everyone to try even harder to, to win. And I think that Oregonians have more choices than they've ever had, certainly at the governor's level for candidates, but even at the legislative level in terms of there being more competitive seats. And so I think we're really going to get a sense of like where Oregonians' heads are at in 2022 because there's just so many candidates that are competitive. There's not enough seats that are locked in safe where you think that somebody's not going to have to do any work to hold power. Everybody's going to have to put in the work. 
Look at Reagan Canope talking about the great success of redistricting in Oregon and creating a balanced landscape for the political parties to compete. And that's really good reviews from Reagan. 100% not what I said, but democracy <laughs> is still great, Ben. Democracy really, is great. Uh, we, we do agree on that. One other thing I was going to mention, Reagan, that I think is important, speaking of redistricting and all of that, I believe it's 38 or 39 state house districts where Democrats have more Democratic voters than Republicans in those districts. So we're talking about money, but also understand that the framework underneath that money in terms of voter registration is not equal, even in these swing districts. Now, granted, non-affiliated voters are sky high, and I think actually more than either of the two individual parties, and even in races where Democrats have an advantage, there's probably more non-affiliated voters in some cases than Democrats in those districts. So it's not a it's not the representation that it used to be in terms of a data point, but it is, I think, super important to keep in mind. Yeah. There's a couple, we'll talk about individual races at a different podcast, but there's some places where the money looks pretty competitive or, you know, not that far apart, but Democrats have like, you know, 10% more voters in the district than the Republicans. So the even money again is not going to in my opinion, not mm-hmm. likely to overcome that dynamic. Yeah, in 2010, when Republicans picked up six seats and split the legislature 30-30, they had to win seats that had Democratic advantages of six, eight, ten points. I think they won some a couple seats on the outskirts of Portland that had more than that even, right? And so Republicans do have to get into some significant Democratic territory and able to win. And they require for that, they need a lot of resources and they need good quality candidates. I think that's about all we got to cover, Reagan. Hopefully this was helpful for folks to give a little more context. I think a lot of this was probably self-evident and people already knew it, but hopefully we added at least one or two additional pieces of information or context to think through next time you see an article in William Week about a big contribution to put it into a little bit more context. And uh, we've got some fun interviews scheduled over the next few weeks. We're getting into a new rhythm. My day job, frankly, is a little bit less flexible. I'm back to in-person. So Reg and I are recording uh, in the evening time, late at night, actually. And we're going to be doing more of this. But also, we've set aside some time that we're going to make it work for interviews. So thanks for your patience as we navigate a new podcast dynamic. But we'll be back to your usually scheduled program relatively soon. So thank you all for listening and supporting the podcast. Reagan, any closing remarks? Ben, we're very committed to our listeners being up. As I look at my clock right now, it says 10, 11. So happy to, happy to be here for the listeners and happy to be talking with you about it. And you can look for our audiobook at Audible called Reading War Star <laughs> coming very soon. <laughs> Expected to be a bestseller. Uh, all right, everyone. Thanks for listening. And we will see you back here next week.